Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the Magi. Uh, Today should be the last day, I believe, that we're going to be looking at the Magi. Um, But what we have to deal with, again, we're trying to figure out why they were there. Why did they come uh, to Bethlehem? Why were they looking for any kind of sign about the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish king? And it's because Daniel had had such an impact on them. What we saw in our last session was that at the end of that, uh, we saw that Daniel prospered during the reigns of two Persian kings, and that would be Darius and Cyrus. Uh, Prior to that, he had prospered under um, Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon before they were conquered by the Persians. And so it's an odd set of circumstances that across three kings, two different kingdoms, Daniel has prospered and he has been raised up uh, within those kingdoms as a leader and recognized by the kings as as one of those leaders as well. And so it, there's jealousy and palace intrigue and all that, but at the same time, they've seen Daniel's, not just his prosperity, but his wisdom, and that his wisdom and uh, transcends their abilities. And so that they know that, that his wisdom comes from a different source. And so today what we get is we're going to, this is, like I said, this will seal up why they're there. And so what we get is in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, by descent a Mede from, from the Medeans, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So he, he looks, he sees, oh, it's 70 years, and so what does he do? He's, he sees they're coming to the end of this 70-year period. Daniel's now an old man. He was taken into Babylon, into captivity as a young man, and now he is an old man because he's been there 70 years. And so what does he do? He turns his face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. So what he does is that he makes confession What he confesses is God is great and awesome. He keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Exactly what we saw in the the passage we looked at during uh, Advent, from uh, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, And, and that's exactly what Daniel is proclaiming on here. This is who you are. And then he says, we have act sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled turning aside from your commandments and rules. So you keep steadfast love and covenant with those who who love you and keep your commandments. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We haven't listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, to all the people of of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame as at this day of, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and far, and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you've driven them, because of the treachery they've committed against you. In other words, what he's saying is, we deserve our lot. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we've sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. For we've rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. 
and the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we've sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. And then he goes on with this thing, and he's pleading with the Lord and says, ultimately, according to your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake, O Lord. Make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And so he's asking the Lord to do this, not because the people are worthy, but because God has promised that he would do these things. He has promised that he would be their God and that the, na- the city would be called by his name. And he says, for your name's sake and for your glory, would you please answer my prayer? He's done exactly what Solomon did when Solomon prayed at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. And, and, and also, you'll see that in that passage we know from Chronicles 7.14, where when my people who are called by my name repent and turn to me, then I'll restore them. And, and that's what he's doing. Solomon says, when your people, wherever they are, turn to you and pray towards this temple and ask, then do it. Lord, restore them. And so, so he sees, Daniel does, that, that, that God said it was going to be 70 years. And so now they're coming to the close of that 70 years, and so he prays and asks God to fulfill his promise and to keep his promise. But it's all based in a confession of God's goodness, his faithfulness, and his love for a people who Daniel confesses are wayward and sinful and who are covenant breakers. So what's the result of his prayer? While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who is an archangel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. So now we're getting to the crux of this vision that the, the um, Magi have, have been transfixed by. They have a time certain here. Now, what the, Daniel doesn't mention a star. That, we believe, comes from actually um, Balaam, this Moabite prophet, who in Numbers 24, 15 to 19 especially in verse 17, says a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. And these magi are astrologers. And so they gaze at the stars. They're astronomers and astrologers at the same time. It's something you need to understand for a long time, even including all the way up through the time of Johannes Kepler, who was the astrophysicist who discovered the law of interplanetary motion that they, that they came in a, not in a circle, but, but in an ellipse, elliptical motion, and some other things as well, who was a, a, a solid believing Christian. He, he practiced astronomy, but he also practiced astrology. 
Now, there's a difference between the kind of astrology that that was practiced in uh, in within Judaism and and that was which was practiced outside of Judaism. One looked because they believed that God put all these things in place, and they were things knowable about God, and and that God used those things as signs and portents. And so you could see these things and see that God was up to something, as opposed to pagans who look and say, though, the stars actually determine what happens in your life. So there's nothing deterministic about the stars. It makes them gods of their own. And no, the, the Israelites would say, no, there's a worthwhile thing in looking at the stars, but not so that it tells uh, my fortune. No, because it shows me what God's up to, because God frequently uses these things to declare. And, and I've mentioned this multiple times. Michael Heiser has a great piece on this in um, on Revelation 12 that you can find easily online. I've posted it actually on the Faith Seeking Understanding site as well as on my own personal page. So on Facebook, I mean. So so we get them looking for this star that God has said is there, and, and it's not predicting anything. God has said in advance, prophetically, it's going to be there through a Moabite prophet. So then in Daniel 9, what we get beyond when, when Gabriel says, uh, you've been heard because you're loved, so then what does he do? Well, he tells him 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. So 70 weeks, that's 490 years, right? So so there's things that are going to be accomplished in that 490-year period, and it's going to be putting an end to sin, atoning for iniquity, bringing in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and profit. In other words, there's no more prophecy. Everything will come about beforehand, and to anoint a most holy place. And so what he says is, though, therefore, and this is Gabriel speaking, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem under Cyrus to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. In other words, it's not going to be an everlasting kingdom. There's going to be something else, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for a week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who is made desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So there's time frames given here. There's going to be six things that are going to happen in all this, beginning with the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And so from history, they know, the Magi do, that the clock on these 70 weeks that's been told through um, the archangel Gabriel, those started ticking in 444 when Cyrus, the king of Persia, ordered the temple and the city to be rebuilt, just like we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. They also knew that the city and its walls weren't completed until 395 B.C., 49 years later. So there's seven sevens, 49 years. So now, from that, they can see, ah, a week is seven years. And so Daniel had been told that 62 sevens, or 434 years after the seven sevens, the Messiah would be cut off, which means that he would suddenly be put to death. So what they realized was that he, he has to reach full manhood 
which would be 30 years in Hebrew culture, and most other ancient cultures, by the way, and carry out his ministry and mission before the time of his death. So it would be 434 years after the seven sevens, which ended in 395 B.C. So they calculated that around 4 B.C. would be when that would be, when this Messiah would come into, into being and be born. And so when they saw the star, they knew that the time had come because they'd been able to articulate the, the timing, beginning with 444, going f- the first seven sevens, it's going to take it down to 395, and now we're going we're gonna to go, okay, there's, there's 434 more years, so there we go. Now we know when to be there. That will be the end of Messiah. So as we've calculated it, and now they know when to come. Because Daniel had been such an important person, for them. They had seen this great wisdom, and they were, they were willing to incorporate those other sources of wisdom outside their own tradition. They had great pride in their own tradition. That tradition was informed, we believe, by some of the children of the Nephilim. So some of these fallen angels who came and gave them wisdom that's not proper for fallen humanity, it would have been fine. If they had not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then it would be okay to have that information because there wouldn't be the experience of evil and therefore a a temptation to use that knowledge for evil. And so, but that was revealed then to these pagan nations. It's what made them incredibly strong and what made these, these races of giants that lived among them. And so they were greatly proud of that, but now they're seeing there's a greater source of wisdom possible, and it's through this Daniel, who worships a different god, and who refuses to worship the gods of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Medes, all of them. And that same witness is going to be seen in the book of Esther. So, but here, so we get the Magi coming because they're looking for this king that's predicted in the Hebrew Scriptures— that will come, and then also, given the timetable there in Daniel 9 about when that one will come. So they're looking for the king, not that he could be their king, but because they so revered Daniel that they knew that this other source of wisdom was great, and so so they bring him gifts when they come. Uh, They bring gifts fit for a king, gold, Incense, which I've said before, was offered only to a god. However, Belshazzar said that, that incense should be offered to Daniel because he saw him as so great. And so they have recognized this, and then the final thing they bring is myrrh, which is the statement that they're making. They understood the prophecy of Daniel that the anointed one would be cut off. And so they knew that he was prophet, priest, and king, but that he would also be the sacrifice for the sins of mankind, that he would be king, God, and sacrifice all in one package. And so because of their reverence for Daniel and the greatness that they saw in him and and that they understood that his wisdom came from above, he is the most high God, the king of heaven, then they knew that there was something in Daniel's religion that was different from theirs, that as great as their wisdom and knowledge was, and it was unrivaled in their minds in the entire world until they met Daniel, now they come to see the one to whom an archangel had revealed 
uh, to Daniel. And so these men, these magi, are the ones who come and inquire where this one is to be born. And then they get the prophecy from Micah. Well, why do they have to ask? Because Micah comes after Daniel. So they didn't know. They just knew there was to be a king that was to be born, but they didn't know where he was to be. And so when Herod asks, then the chief priests and the scribes respond by quoting prophecy from Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so now we know the rest of the story with respect to these men, the Magi, and what their interest would have been and why they wouldn't have known where this child would be, but all that mattered was that this would be the one.